This is Celebration Church, but it's more than just a building or a church. We have a calling to be a place where people can find a relationship with God instead of religion. A place where freedom is found and acceptance given, and every person can discover their purpose and experience the kind of fulfillment only God can give. Together we will raise, lead, and empower a generation to change the world. Here, Jesus is famous, and all the glory goes to God. This is celebration. This is our family. Welcome home. Hello, good to be here at uh, Celebration Church. Greet our, uh, I want to greet our Appleton campus joining with us just now. Good to have you guys with us. Our Stevens Point campus has been with us from the beginning, and of course, everybody here. Good to have you here for our first Wednesday, the first Wednesday of every month we gather together uh, for a time of singing, worship, and, uh, and Bible study. The rest of the month, we encourage people to get involved in uh, home groups, uh, different ways of connecting with people, uh, and because you really start to grow and get to know people in a smaller setting than you can in a larger setting. It just It is the way it is. I mean, a lot of us don't even know the names of the people next to us. <laughs> so it is ways in a bigger setting, but in a smaller setting, you get a chance to really get to know people, care about people. So we want to encourage that. But then on the first Wednesday, we take time to gather together as a larger group. Um, this is the last first Wednesday uh, going now into summer. So there won't be any in June, July, and August. So we won't gather again together for Wednesday, first Wednesday until September. All right, why is that? Because it's summer, and the pastor doesn't want to go to church during summer nights. <laughs> or much of anybody else, quite frankly. Uh, the weather's so bad around here, we like to take time off and finally enjoy our summer, and then we'll go back into, you know, we're still waiting for spring to hit here, right? Yeesh. We didn't have buds on the trees yet. It stinks. We don't really have spring. We have summer, fall, winter, and mud. And uh, everybody else has spring. We do not. So anyway, when, when it finally comes here, we like to take the opportunity. Now, even though we are not doing the first Wednesday, what we want to encourage you is to still connect with people on the first Wednesday. Or if you want to move it to a Friday or whatever works, uh, get together with people. All right? Uh, the next time we're supposed to normally have a first Wednesday, gee, we normally have first Wednesdays. What do we do? Invite some people over. You know, people in the church, maybe some neighbors, a bunch of Christian friends, whatever, and connect with each other. All right? The more we connect with each other, the stronger we will be. The kingdom of God was not designed to be a bunch of individuals floating around doing their own thing. The closer we are, the stronger uh, we will all become. So we want to encourage you. If you've got this extra time, take the time to connect with people. Invite some people that maybe you wouldn't normally take the time to spend time with. Amen. All right. So now, um, tonight I'm going to wrap up the study that we've been doing from the first of the year uh, about called, Why Are We Here?, and we've been looking at uh, uh, the scriptures from Genesis literally to Revelations, looking at what is going on. How did it all this happen? And I'm going to give you a brief summary for those of you who haven't been following along, but we won't get into the details on the, on the summary. Um, what we know, this isn't an accident. This isn't just some casual thing. We are in what I call the greatest halftime in eternity. What has happened was Satan got very arrogant. We know what his motive was. He was full of pride and stuff, and he figured he could do it better than God. And then he incites this revolution to try and overthrow God. He has a third of the angels join with him, and clearly they thought they could take him. Nobody ever does 
uh, of revolution without thinking they can take it. Right now, for example, down in uh, Venezuela, you know, they're hitting to the streets and they're trying to get a, a military coup and they, they're hoping they can overthrow the Maduro regime. Uh, nobody does this unless they think we can do it, we can pull this off. So uh, Satan thought he could do it, convinced a third of the angels they could do it. And, you know, we know what his motive was. What I've always wondered and pondered is what did he tell angels? What did he tell people who ever think perfect? It's one thing for him to dupe us, right? You know, we're still waiting for spring. We don't even know what's going on around here. I mean, we're just people. We can't see everything. So one thing to fool. How do you fool someone who has everything perfect? Absolute pure perfection. Angels. And convince them, you know, this kind of stinks. Wow. I mean, his gift of deception is beyond anything I think any of us can begin to comprehend. So we came up with, these, with this theory based on scripture. So, but, you know. I'm not going to go to the mat fighting about these things, but I basically came up with, I think, three things he told him. One, God isn't all that strong. Because why would you do this? If you thought you could take him, uh, if you thought God was really omnipotent, all-powerful, you wouldn't have tried this. He must have believed he wasn't. Number two, he had to convince him that God doesn't really know what he's doing. And we looked at the scriptures that hinted at the way that God deals with his uh, creation. We look at three times in the Old Testament where someone had a vision into heaven and God is on the throne and he's asking the angels and stuff around the throne for their advice. Okay, I think from maybe these, of Satan's perspective, these angels, they started doubting. They said, well, why is he asking their advice? You know what? He doesn't know what he's doing, you know. Of course, we know now the reason he does this is because God exactly knows what to do, but he loves to engage his creation. Otherwise, just a bunch of robots, right? He just tells everybody what to do and everybody just does it. Well, that doesn't make for much of an interaction between beings, so he loves to pull in people. But I think Satan must have gotten the wrong idea. He doesn't know what he's doing. And then thirdly, God doesn't really care. So we know number one was settled right away when God flicked Satan out of heaven. Now, we don't know how long the battle happened. I think it was pretty fast. I think this coup was over faster than they had ever dreamed. The next morning, they must have been shocked like they couldn't even begin to comprehend as they went up against him in the power that he unleashed on them and knocked him out of heaven. They landed on a rock called earth. And that's where it all starts. And then they're all waiting for now to be judged because it's not done yet. All they did was smack him upside the head and throw him down. Now the judgment's coming. They all know that it's coming. Many times in the gospels, you will see that when Jesus approached someone who was demon-possessed, the demons would start crying out in terror. Are you here to torment us before the judgment time? Why are they freaking out? Because it's foremost on their brain. They know it's coming. This is, this is no, they're waiting for the hammer to fall. And they were always freaking out every time Jesus came. You're here to torment us now before the final time. And that's what they're waiting for. So there's this pause between knocking them down, and now the final judgment. And then the pause is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we know that. And then it says, and the earth was without form and void. Well, when was the last time God ever created something without form and void? See, something happened. So we believe what happened is you look at the scriptures. It says, I saw Satan fall to the earth. He came to this rock. Uh, who knows what was here? Maybe that's when dinosaurs and stuff were thriving around here. We don't, all we know is there was a massive change in the way things function on this planet. Everything was devastated when they came and falling to this rock. And it's just a big mess. What God does is he starts pushing back the water, drying out the thing, says, let there be light. You know, starts bringing life back onto the earth. And then his last step is to take a man 
and, and then a woman out of his own image and put them in this garden. Well, Satan's mortified. What, what is going on? What is happening? You know? And here's the other interesting thing. We have no idea how long they were sitting on this planet in devastation. It could have been for millions of years. People say, people say well, the Bible says the earth's only been here 6,000 years. It doesn't say that. It says it's been 6,000 years since Adam was here. How long the earth's been? Who knows? It could have been, if I were God, I'd let those guys just float around <laughs> on a big wet rock for a really long time. So anyway, he comes in, sets it all. They're probably, what is this? And then he sees these two creatures that look like who? God. Remember, he created us. And if you read the Bible, you see there's all kinds of weird-looking creatures that God creates around the, on the throne, talking about angels with six wings and some with the face of a lion and something, all kinds of you know, critters and stuff up there. But when he came to us, he made us as a reflection of his own glory. We kind of look like God. Believe it or not, despite your hair not being perfect, <laughs> being too skinny, overweight, whatever your problem is, uh, there's, generally speaking, we, when he looks at us, he's reminded of God. It's one of the reasons he hates us so desperately. So he sees these two creatures look like God. He says, what, what, what is this? What is this? They get tired. They got to lay down. They got to poop. You know, what is this? They don't, he doesn't understand. It's, it's all bizarre to him. So he says, he goes to deceive them. They fall for a trick just like that. And then sin takes over the world. And then the big mess that we have seen ever since then. But as all this has been acting out, what has been happening is before all of eternity, remember, all of heaven heard these challenges to God's power. They are now seeing demonstrated on the earth and have been for the last 6,000 or so years what happens when people obey God and what happens when they do not. And it has been a dramatic, bless you, there's been a dramatic uh, display. And we know, reading the last time, that there's going to come when Jesus comes back, he's going to rule and reign on this earth. It's not going to be heaven. That's coming. But he's going to rule and reign on this earth. Green Bay, Wisconsin will actually be here. And probably still Packer Games, for all I know. I have no idea. But for a thousand years, and of course we know Jesus comes, he's a Packer fan, and that's going to be it. So we'll always win. For a thousand years, we'll have an unbeaten record. So uh, he's going to rule and reign on this earth for a thousand. Why? He's going to show what it should have been like. And it says the lion will lay down with the lamb. Animals will stop eating each other. Uh, it says a child will be like 100 years. So for all we know, people are going to live extended years. Maybe some they think that people generally will not die uh, during this reign. It's going to be amazing. And it's going to show all of heaven what would have happened. This is the way it should have been in the first place. And then all of this wraps up. And Satan gets thrown into the fiery furnace. And there's a great white throne judgment, and, and that's, that's it. And then a new heavens and a new earth. The Bible says this earth is going to go up in a ball of flame. So yes, there is global warming coming. <laughs> and Al Gore can't do nothing about it, I'll tell you right now, because when he lights that fuse, this sucker's going up. Boom! And, uh, and a new heavens and a new earth is going to come. And that's the beginning of from, from here on eternity. And the point is now, uh, there won't be any more challenges now. No one throughout eternity will ever be able to challenge what had been challenged. This is no small deal what happened when Satan caused this rebellion. It is massive. We are still in the middle of all of it. And it's going to come to a close very soon. How soon? I don't know. It could be another thousand years. It could be a hundred years. I have no idea. It could be a day after tomorrow. All I know is at some point this is coming to an end 
and he's going to set all things right. Hallelujah. All right. So, and then, of course, the final question, does God really care? Well, that's answered <laughs> beyond comprehension when he comes to the earth, takes on the form of a man, lets them beat the snot out of him and crucify him. I mean, it's amazing. He dies for the sins of the world. He demonstrates there's no greater love that could be demonstrated than what Jesus did, God did through Jesus Christ. It's an amazing story. So that answers the three questions. It is now settled for eternity, and it's getting ready to wrap up uh, very, very soon. Now, um, if you were here on Sunday, which you should have been, um, is I was speaking about what happens when forgiveness happens and talking about this, this transfer that happens. Because we often talk about Jesus takes the sins, our sins, and we think that's it. But it's not just it. Uh, the Bible teaches that he takes what is wrong with us and then he gives us what is right about him. It is a transfer. He takes our sins, he gives us his righteousness. We are now beings, we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. It's the, the status that we have in eternity most of them have no concept. We do not get it. Paul used to pray, he said, man, I pray that your eyes would be open so you can get this, so you can start to understand why. Uh, because when you start to understand who you are, it changes you. You know, I, I love these movies where, uh, you know, someone's going along and they're kind of a loser and a nobody and a nothing, and then they discover that, oh, he's actually the king of England or the king of some country and stuff like, you know, those movies like that. There's dozens of them. You know, some lady who's a, Nobody finds out she's the queen of whatever land. And, and what happens, the, the transformation is amazing. Now, this person who was a complete loser and had no confidence suddenly becomes, by the end of the movie, gorgeous, amazing, powerful, and full of confidence. Why? Because they begin to understand who they are. Once you start to understand, I am a king. I am the queen. I am royalty and everyone's looking up to you, it changes the way you see yourself. And really, to walk in victory as a Christian, we need to start understanding how God sees us. That's how we forgive ourselves. That was the point of, of, of Sunday's message. When you start to, start to understand how God sees you, it changes the way you see you. Because we all see ourselves in light of our sins and failures, but God does not. When he forgives you, he looks at you, that's not, he doesn't look at someone who, gee, you're still a mess, even though you probably still... <laughs> RMS, all right? That's not the way he looks. He looks at you and he sees what he saw in Jesus, which is hard to even begin to comprehend. But that is, in fact, what happens. And this transfer is like, it's an amazing thing. And God makes this incredible investment in us as believers. Again, hard to comprehend. You know, there's, there's a... Actually, I don't have this verse up, but uh, there's a time where... Uh, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. And the letter to the first letter of the Corinthians is the most encouraging letter to any pastor because these are the most jacked up people on earth. If, if you think your church, any pastor, you think your church is having problems, just read 1 Corinthians. You got it going on compared to these people. These people were jacked up, had so many issues. We're going to read one of the issues in a minute. But the one I, I didn't bring up and just came to mind is uh, they were having a problem with guys going to prostitutes. And, and Paul is trying to reason with them. Now, I found out you're going to prostitutes. I'm going to beat the snot out of you. But that's not what he does. He actually doesn't yell at them. He says to them, and it's interesting because he, he had no problem yelling at people. I mean, he was, he was intense. But when it came to this issue, 
He knew there was something going on. It was the way they were seeing themselves. He says, don't you understand that, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Okay, you, when you start to understand who you are, you don't behave in these ways. So it talks about, you know, our body is the temple and people often quote, you know, that's why we should exercise or why we should take vitamins or why you shouldn't eat too many cheeseburgers. Our body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is going to prostitutes, all right? You really shouldn't be doing really demeaning things to yourself uh, in, in an act like that because of who you are. So it's fascinating that on something that intense, he doesn't yell at them and smack them. He realizes they are living below their stature. They don't understand who they are. And he says, he says, would Christ join himself with a prostitute? Of course, the answer is no. He says, but you are Christ in the earth. I mean, we are carrying this. We are the temple of, of the Holy Spirit. We should honor, our, honor God with our bodies because we are in a different place now. We are the righteousness of God in Christ. This transfer has happened. He's taken our sins. We've taken on his righteousness. We are somebody. We are something unique. The more you understand this, and this is why you really should read the Bible. And honestly, if you're new at this, even a few years into this, you really ought to focus on the New Testament. If you're going to read the Bible for the first time, don't start at the beginning of Genesis. Unless you're Jewish, it's not going to make a whole lot of sense to you. And it is very hard reading, very difficult to comprehend, and it's all out of order. I don't know why. Who decided this is still a mystery to me. But everything is completely out of order. So you're trying to read the Old Testament. It's like the... It's all jacked up. I mean, there's good stuff to learn from it, and I, I would encourage you to eventually get there, but not until you've really gotten into the New Testament. That is what really talks about who we are, what God has done, what Christ has done in our hearts, what our standing is, the way we should be living life. So if you're new to the Bible, by all means, don't go. Start with Genesis. Start with one of the Gospels and read Acts and, and the epistles and just read how Paul, and it's a lot easier to understand, by the way, there's a few parts that are a little hard. Paul at times kind of got in the weeds, but if you run into something you don't understand, just keep reading. But the rest of it is, is rather, rather clear. And it's very powerful and it's very encouraging and uplifting. The more you start to understand and see yourself the way God sees you, the more you will become a successful Christian. It changes the way that you act when you start to see yourself in the right light. Um, check this out. In Ephesians, the second chapter now, New Testament, Paul's writing to the Ephesian church and he says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions, which is a fancy word for sins. It is by grace you have been saved. Uh, you can't earn it. You can't buy it. You don't work off your sins. You come to him. You reach out to him in faith, and he grants you forgiveness. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now, that's a little hard to understand. Paul uh, had all kinds of visions and stuff that he didn't even pass on to people because I don't think he knew we wouldn't be able to grasp it. But he's saying at some level, we are already seated with Christ. We all think, well, we got to wait till you die and all this stuff. No, in a sense, right now, when you understand what is happening in a spiritual realm, we are seated with Christ. It's not like you're at the back of the line. You know what I'm saying? The more you start to realize you get to go to the front of the line, it changes the way you think. It changes the way you feel about yourself. We're seated with Christ in heaven. 
That's the status that we have. Angels look at this and envy us, believe it or not, because of the status. Now, we won't realize it until it's in its fullness until we do pass on into the next life. But it starts now, and it's a powerful, powerful thing. So anyway, uh, why did God do all of this? And this is verse 7, which is the premise of what I've been talking about this entire time. Is that he does this in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us. See, if there is ever, ever again throughout eternity any challenge that God doesn't, isn't strong enough, that he doesn't know what he's doing, and he doesn't really care, all he's going to do is point them to us. Look at her. Look at him. Look. We are forever the testament of God's incomparable mercy and grace throughout the rest of eternity. This is never going to happen again. Whatever Satan came with, no one's ever going to pull that game again because this answer will be forever answered in you. I know it's hard to comprehend because we don't see ourselves that, that way, but that is what is happening. Not only uh, are we going to uh, be the testament of, of uh, God's grace, there is an amazing thing that's going to happen. And we see it in 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter. Now, in this context, what's happening is the Corinthian church, like I said, they're, they're all jacked up and they're mad at each other. <laughs> Some guys are going to prostitutes. One of the things is they'd get mad at each other and they'd sue each other. Christians should not be suing each other. Now, I guarantee people who do sue each other always feel justified in doing so because the other person's so evil. And because they're so evil, they're not really brother in Christ. And, and I've heard the ex, ex, you know, explanations for all this throughout the years. So many Christians still take each other to court and sue each other over money. It's always money. The love of money is the root of all evil, all right? Anyway, so this is what's going to happen. They're getting mad at each other and dragging each other to court because someone feels somebody screwed somebody over. Christians. I know it's hard to imagine a Christian would screw somebody else over. Apparently it happens. Our struggles. So he says, if any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? And say, if you've got an argument, take it to the church. Take it for other brothers and sisters. Ideally, and again, sadly, this is idealistic because nobody really lives us out anymore that I've seen. But if you got a problem with this guy and you had this, what you really ought to do is come to the church and say, we have this problem. He owes me 50 bucks or 500, 5,000 bucks, whatever the deal is. And I think he screwed us over and stuff like that. And what should we do? And we would make a call about it. And what's really interesting, you say, you mean the pastors get the call? Actually, Paul teaches, uh, we don't get into it yet. He says, find the people of the lowest class in the church, the simplest of them. Even the top guys don't judge. You should take it to the simplest bunch of believers in the church who don't you say, well, gee, I don't, I don't really know much about anything. Perfect. You're on the jury. All right? So, and let them judge. And uh, I know it's hard to comprehend, but this is what Paul says we should do. And then he challenges us, says, or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world. Now, this is kind of a radical thing because we know judgment is coming and judgment ultimately is from God. And we know that there's going to be the great white throne judgment where all the dead will be raised and everybody's going to have to give an answer for their life. But in terms of judging the world, uh, we are going to do it. God's going to trust you to make the judgment on this world. 
And that's nothing. It goes heavier than this. He says, don't you know that those people judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? So these trivial cases, if we're going to some way, someday judge what one nation did righteous or another and one city did to another and, and at judgment day, everybody's going to have to give an answer, right? And apparently, the ones that are going to be given the final call on it are believers. Uh, but even worse than that for the evil, it says, do you not know that we will judge who? Angels. Now stop and think of the perfect insult back to Satan. Satan sees Adam and Eve. He despises their very existence. He deceives them into falling, and he has tortured and made miserable the lives of people for millennia and continues to this very day. And he hates Christians with a passion that's beyond imagination. And who do you think is going to judge some of these angels? People. The very things they despise the very most are going to be making some of the final calls on judgment of angels. I mean, it's hard to get your head around this. This is the kind of stuff that you don't normally hear people talk about, but it's interesting. It's all in the Bible that someday we will make the call. We're going to judge. And it's like uh, if you ever watch war movies, um, of course, the last major worldwide conflicts like World War II. But when a general or someone, a major stuff like that, when they surrender, they want to surrender to someone of equal or greater uh, stature than themselves. In other words, if I'm a major or a general, I do not surrender to a sergeant. That is humiliating. Now, oftentimes, uh, they would cause... <laughs> I like some of the Nazi guys that were surrendering to surrender to lesser things just to kind of stick it to them, you know, and it was really humiliating for them, and they thought it was really improper. Well, um, that's in essence what God's going to do. You know, being an angel, well, I'll, I'll surrender to God now. And it's not all. You surrender to Susan over here. Yeah, the one you made miserable, the one you told her all her life she's too fat, her, you know, the one who has no self-confidence, the one who, you know, yeah, you surrender her. Why would I surrender? That's what's going to happen. He's actually, that, so what he's trying to say is, do you realize who you are? That's what he's trying to get across to these people. The stature that we have as believers is really rather uh, powerful and stunning. So do you not know that we will judge the angels? And then he says to them, how much more are the things of this life? Now, here's the thing about these letters that they write. He's often right. You guys, you know this stuff, right? Well, we don't know it because we're reading it for the first time. So there's a lot of stuff that they were saying and teaching that we don't really know what they're saying until they start talking about these letters. It's like if somebody a thousand years ago reads a letter between you and a friend, you might mention things that the readers, can, they don't have any context. So some of these things don't have context, but it's easy to piece it together. Apparently, these were things that he had taught them, and they understood who they were, what it means, the status that we have. We are now the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We are somebody's, uh, the... Uh, um, uh, the incomparable riches of God are going to be displayed in us throughout eternity. Uh, all very powerful things. And eventually we will judge the nation, uh, uh, the world, and we will even judge angels. Pretty amazing things. All right, so now, all of this to wrap up the, the final part of this that I want to talk about. And, and that is that uh, God loves to, we've, we talked about it before, 
but that God loves to hear from you. He wants to hear from you. He lights up and is the most glorified when you make the right decisions based on the principles of his word. Does that make any sense? Here's the problem. For a very long time, it was, and still in a lot of Christian circles, they kind of teach that the only thing that matters is do what God tells you to do. Just do what God tells you to do. Just do what God tells you to do. Of course, well, what should I do? I don't do what God tells you to do. Of course, I've preached against this for a very, very long time. You got a problem. You go to someone with your problem, and they say, well, just do what the Lord tells you to do. Get away from them, okay? Because these people don't know anything. If you can't give somebody some advice based on the wisdom of God that is in you, admit, you know, I'm dumb as a brick. I don't know. Go talk to somebody else. Corey, maybe he knows. Maybe she knows everything. Because that is the most embarrassing, shameful thing. And it happens sometimes. Sometimes we're just caught. You know, we, we haven't been studying. We don't know. Someone comes to us and you go, honestly, I don't know. But don't just tell them, do what the Lord tells you to do, for heaven's sakes. Of all the ridiculous things, as if God's going to be showing up to t- give them the answer. That's not the way this works. We, who will judge angels, should be able to give advice to each other. Somebody say amen. amen. This idea that God's going to just do it all is absurd and ridiculous. There are people who don't do anything with their lives. I'm talking Christians who are wasting away their entire lives doing nothing for the kingdom of God because they're waiting for God to tell them what to do. Where are you going to go to school? I'm waiting for the Lord to tell me. Oh, what are you, Moses? For heaven's sakes. Make a decision. Think it through. Get some advice. It's okay to pray for wisdom and stuff, but wisdom gives you the ability to discern between good and bad. It doesn't tell you everything you're supposed to do. This is when God is the most glorified. The idea that the God is most glorified when you just find out what he do, tells you to do and you do it, that, I do not believe, is that much glorifying to God. It's like my son, who was up here playing the guitar earlier, all right? He's 40 years old. I'm, I'm getting old. Anyway, so, so anyway, it's not a credit to me if every morning I have to call him to make sure he gets out of bed and say, Phil, did you change your underwear today? Phil, change your underwear, Phil. Phil, did you poop today? Did you you got to go poop. Everybody's got to go poop. You know, something you do with a little tiny child. It's not a credit to me. That would be a shame. Think of it as an adult. This would mean you're a horrible failure as a parent. If this kid cannot function on his own without you telling him what to do every five seconds. This idea that just fries my Puerto Rican pancakes that people have taught for so long, whatever, that, I don't know what that means. But, but you know, where just do what God does, just go to, you know, and there's people who literally, you listen to them talk, well, I was driving around, I felt the Lord told me to turn left here and then turn right here and, and to back up here and, and do this. And, and I think, come on. I, I just think they're filled with their own thoughts. I don't think that's the way. They think God is glorified. That is not, how is that glorifying to God? How's that glorifying? Somebody explain this to me. It, it, it isn't glory. It's glory. He's already told us what to do. It's in the Bible. It's why you ought to read the Bible. What should I do with my life? Read your Bible. Well, I, I want to know. Should I work at Burger King or McDonald's? I don't think God cares. And if he does, he'll show up and tell you. He's a big boy. It's so one thing parents know. If you want your kids to do something, do you tell them or do you wait for them to seek your face? Oh, mom. Oh, wonderful mom. What do you desire of me today? Oh, you tell them, hey, don't do that. Or do that. Why, if Jesus said, if you being evil know how to communicate with your, you know, to, to, to do transactions with your kids to give good things, how much more God would do? 
I mean, it's just, it's absurd. It's just absurd. I do, there's times when God will walk into your life and absolutely speak to you very clearly about something to do. I've had it happen. Many of you have had it happen. But you can count on one hand for me personally a number of times. I think God knows how to show up and really speak. Don't do that. You just feel it. It's like I've heard it, a voice in my head just, I'm about to do something. Don't do that. Oh, man. And you know it's God. You know it's God. I'm telling you. And then I don't do it. You know, but they don't sit around waiting the next day to make a decision about anything. Take God's principles about how to live life. That's what the scriptures are full of wisdom, how to do life. And when we do life, making the right decisions, being sensitive to his voice when he has something specific, but make the right decision, this is what brings glory to God. This is why God, uh, when Satan comes to criticize, uh, and he does, he comes to criticize us, he comes to criticize God. He just points at us, look. Look, they're doing pretty good, huh? What about those guys over there? What do you think of them, huh? Built a good business, doing good, raised some good kids. They used to hate each other, now they actually get along. Check this out. I mean, this is, this is all positive stuff that brings glory to God. And in fact, you don't hear much from Jesus about this idea of sitting and waiting to hear from God. And usually when people talk about waiting on the Lord, they will inevitably quote the Old Testament. The thing is, we don't live by the Old Testament. They didn't have the Holy Spirit living inside of everybody and all that kind of stuff. This idea of just wait, 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 wait to find out what to do is more Old Testament than it is New Testament. What, you don't have Jesus going around and saying, do what God tells you to do. Don't do anything here. Wait, wait listen, listen, you know, you know, once or twice, but that's not the message of Jesus. What Jesus did is constantly go to everybody and say, tell God what you want him to do. Ask God what you want from him. What would you like him to do? Ask him. Ask him. All right, and we read it. Let's go through some of these. Matthew, the seventh chapter. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. In Mark, we read, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. Jesus tells them again in Luke, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest field. You see, there's a need and we need people to do things. Ask God to send people. Doesn't God know we need people? That's not the point. He likes to be asked. He likes us to engage with him. Uh, Luke 11, Jesus says, everyone who asks receives. The one who finds, uh, the one who seeks finds. The one who knocks, the door will be open. He's constantly aching on. God loves to hear from you. God loves to hear what is, Ask God what you want him to do. Luke 11, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? John 14, you may ask me anything in my name and I will do it. Chapter 15 in John, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 16, until now you've not asked anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete, I bet. John 16, 26, in that day you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Are you see this? In that day, you will ask in my name. I'm not saying, I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. You can ask God yourself. And this is one of the problems I have with, and this is not to pick a fight with Catholics and some, you know, Orthodox people who believe in asking, praying to saints and stuff like that and praying to his mom. Why? If I got Donald Trump's number, I'm calling the man. I'm not calling his mom. I'm not calling the secretary. I'm not calling the guys that 
grew up with him in school. I'm going to the man. That's the kind of access. He even says, I'm not saying that I'll ask the father. You ask him. Really? Yes. Why? Because God wants you to. He loves to be asked. God loves to be asked. Some people don't like it. I love it. I love it when people ask me for stuff. I can't always do it, but I love it. You know? God loves it when he goes, hey, can I have this? Dad, can I do this? Okay. You know, he loves to be generous. He just loves it. He's looking. Oh, here's James. He says, you desire, but you don't have. So you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. He says, you do not have because you do not ask God. Ask God. What do you want God to do in your life? Ask him. What do you want God to do in your family's life? Ask him. What do you want him to do in the lives of the people that you work with, the people that are struggling and having a hard time? Ask God. He loves for people to, in prayer to direct his hand and his power. So, well, God knows what he needs to do. I'm telling you, the implication is that God will not do it unless he is asked. Here's a scripture. Easy, this is an amazing scripture as we bring this to an end. God says, I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it. But I found none. That's Old Testament wording and it gets a little confusing. What he's saying is they deserved judgment and destruction. That's what they had coming. And, and he doesn't want to do it. He said, I couldn't find anybody to ask me not to do it. So down came the hammer. That doesn't make any sense. You mean God wanted to not do it, but he wouldn't do it because he couldn't find anyone to ask him not to do it. This is the heart of God. We need to understand God. He loves to be asked. And the implication is that even if he wants something to happen, he won't do it unless somebody asks him to do it. So start thinking your status. Who are we? We're something in, in God's. We're something in the kingdom of God. We have value. We're going to be judging angels someday. We're not just a bunch of nitwits in Wisconsin. We're somebody because of what he's done in us, because of this wonderful transfer. We give him our sins. He gives us his righteousness. We are the righteousness of God. We're seated in heavenly places. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds cool. And he wants us to ask him and direct his hand. When you start to see it, it changes the way you pray. It changes the way you lead, live your life. It is amazing. Now stop and think just for a short depressing moment. <laughs> God is wanting to bring glory in front of all creation, all angels, through us. Now stop and think what God thinks when he sees us arguing with each other. Stop and think how disappointed in his heart when we won't forgive each other. Stop and think how disappointed he is when we are letting sin just wreck and rule and destroy our lives and destroy our homes and destroy our families. Is he mad? Does he want to destroy you? He does not. But what a heartbreak. He wants us to live successful lives. He's given us the directions for successful lives. We need to let go we need to love people, be kind to each other, because when we do not do these things and we don't love each other and we're at each other's throat, we're critical of each other and gossiping about each other and all these other things, I believe it just breaks the heart of God. 
because this is not the way it should be. Like Paul says, don't you realize who you are? When you start to realize who you are, it will change the way we behave. And sometimes we behave rather badly. And the reason we behave rather badly is we don't get it. We don't realize the way we should be and who we are. And when you start to get it, it changes everything. And that is the wrap-up to why are we here. All right, let's, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your kindness and your grace. Lord, it's, it's, some of this stuff is really difficult to comprehend. And consequently, Lord, we live below our status because we just can't see it. I pray that you will open up our eyes. Help us to understand what you're doing in us, who we are, how much you love us, how much power you've given to us, how much authority, the fact that someday you will look to us for answers about how to deal with fallen angels. God, help us to realize who we are and help us to live the kind of lives that bring glory to you. Using wisdom, using understanding, being led by your spirit, but not just sitting around and doing nothing, but acting on what you've given us, bringing glory and honor to you in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen.